My name is Jason Doldine, and I'm the host of Reaching Roots, a podcast with a goal to make life easier for parents and families so they can reach further. We're talking to people who inspire us with their journey, tell us about the problems they are solving, and provide us insight that helps us and our children learn and grow. Annette Laro is an author and a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania who studies topics on family life. Annette has explored various related topics in her books, ranging from the impact of class and race on children to how parents decide where to live and where to send their children to school. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr., in his speech, I Have a Dream, expressed hope for the equality and freedom of all. He called for African Americans to be offered equal civil and economic rights and opportunities as everyone else. We are now almost 60 years forward. How much of this dream has come true? Annette Larrow studied 88 African-American and white families to understand the impact of how social class makes a difference in children's lives. Ten years later, she revisited these families. She studied their awareness of social class, high school experiences, and the effect of organized activities as they grew up. Looking at pathways each of their lives had followed, she noticed that their lives had diverged in a profound way. Annette wrote about the influence of class and race on their lives in the second edition of her book, Unequal Childhoods. In this episode, we talk to Annette about the impact, benefit, and disadvantages that social class has on our education and life, who we will marry, where we will live, and how we find jobs. Raised in California, Annette received her doctorate from the University of California, Berkeley. She has served as the president of the American Sociological Association and her books have received numerous awards. Her book, Unequal Childhoods, was discussed by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, and was covered by David Brooks of the New York Times. Okay, welcome, Annette. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. It's such an important topic that I feel uh, we have to discuss today. So Annette, tell me a little bit about um, kind of your background and uh, what inspired you to kind of write Unequal Childhoods. Well, I grew up in a middle-class family in the Bay Area, Northern California. My parents were both school teachers. My father had been in the Navy and my mother was upwardly mobile. She grew up in a very poor family in New York and the Bronx. They moved around a lot and they often had food shortages and she used to go to the New York Public Library to stay warm. So she impressed upon us the importance of that we were, that they both had jobs, that we had plenty to eat, and that we were uh, very fortunate. And so I think that, and I also went to UC Santa Cruz as an undergraduate. And when I was an undergraduate, I, I spent a couple months living in a, a community which had a lot of blue collar people who were mostly African-American. And I used to go around in the evening and knock on doors with another student. We I used to offer to help them with homework. And then in the morning, we used to drive, uh, ride the bus with them to school. And we used to be volunteers in the classroom. And I was struck by what different perspectives the teachers and the families had. And the families you heard the parents say, oh, I want him to do well. I want him to succeed. And the teachers would say, those families don't value education. So there was a mismatch between what the families and the 
parents, the families and the educators were seeing about the very same children and very same actions. And right. that made me interested in this topic. Okay, so tell me about how did you go about sort of um, writing this book? Well, uh, with the help from the Spencer Foundation, I had a grant and I did research on 88 families, uh, first in the Midwest and then a large Northeastern city, which is anonymous. And I went, I visited two schools. I did a visiting in the classroom in third and fourth grades. And then I interviewed 88 families, half were white, half were African-American. They were middle-class, working-class, and poor. And I defined class not by income, which changes a lot, but really by parents' education and occupations. Since certain, once if you lose your job, your prior education and job really predict your future possibilities. Right. So we did, I did interviews with them. I had research assistants who helped me. And then um, after that, for 12 of the families and the most unusual feature of it, I asked them if we could visit them in their homes, usually every day for about three weeks. And the families were paid, usually the equivalent of about $550 in current dollars. And we went with them when they, if they had activities, if they went to church, if they went to soccer, we went, went along with them to family gatherings. There's often one overnight. And we tried to understand how much work it was to get through the kids through the day. And we especially looked at organized activities, how parents use language to talk to people, their kids, and if the parents intervened in uh, doctor visits or in school and other institutions. Right, right, right. So Annette, could you paint maybe a little bit more of a picture around sort of those segments that you actually talked about, sort of the poor, the working class, and I think the middle class is what you mentioned. Yeah. Um, just give us some more color around, like, you know, what does a family that fits into each of those segments look like? Well, a middle-class family, usually they have a college degree and they might have an, a master's or more, even more education. They have a professional job. So they might be an accountant or a high-level manager or high-level executive. They could be a lawyer or a doctor okay. and a social worker. And I found that all parents wanted their kids to be healthy and happy but they had different ideas about what was the best way to bring that about. And for the middle-class parents, they saw their kids as a project. So almost 24 seven, they wanted to expose their children to opportunities to build their skills. Yeah. And the parents thought they had a duty to help their children in this way. So they would take them to organize activities. They would answer questions with questions. And if any problem came up in school or the doctor's office, they intervened immediately. And the working class and poor families, working class families, often high school graduates, blue collar jobs, closely supervised, sometimes get work with their hands. Poor families are people who um, often are not in the labor force in any consistent way, often high school dropouts or high school graduates. Those folks, they love their kids enormous too. They wanted everything in life for them and they saw that there were looming difficulties ahead. They thought life would be hard for them. So they wanted to protect them from that hardship. And they let them play, watch TV, hang out with their cousins. They gave them directives like cut it out, don't do this. And they turned over responsibility for health and for education to the professionals. Right. And so they saw that they would protect them and use scarce resources. But then after that, the children would spontaneously grow and thrive. So if a kid said, mom, will you help me with the dollhouse? The kid said, no. The mom said, no, she was busy. She said it was up to the kid to entertain themselves. 
right. while the middle class parents would stop what they were doing and help with the dollhouse because they felt they had an obligation to cultivate their children at all moments. So I call the middle class parents concerted cultivation, a concerted effort to cultivate them. While the right. working class families, I call the accomplishment of natural growth. It's a gardening analogy, similar right. to we have beautiful flowers in lots of ways, but they're different. Yeah. So what's better? I don't take a position on that. They both have strengths and weaknesses. Right. Um, working class kids often are played with a lot of autonomy. They took up for their sisters and their brothers and their cousins. They had a lot of family solidarity. Uh, they had a keen sense of uh, family loyalty. Um, when it came to school, they often had lower vocabularies and they were sometimes less successful in school because schools had relatively def narrow definitions about how to promote, how to achieve success. Right. The middle-class kids often um, succeeded in school, but they were kind of mean to each other's siblings. There was a lot of emphasis on individualism. In other words, the kids would say, I hate him about their sister. Right. Or, you know, and the parents wouldn't like it, but they would put up with it because you know the kids would be like pounding each other in back seat and the parents would be like, oh, I guess we should have separated them. So it wasn't like they enjoyed their kids being mean to one another, but they just thought that that was inevitable. And the working class kids, they just entertained themselves. They almost never complained about being bored, but the middle-class kids, the minute something stopped, they would say, "I'm more, mom, I'm bored. And they would expect mom to do something about it. And so there just was a different set of duties and obligations to each other that varied by social class. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it, it kind of strikes me that, you know, um, like I did another podcast around um, uh, actually several of them, right? Um, some have talked about sort of how important it is to let our kids fail. Some, some have been really around how important it is to just allow our kids to figure it out themselves, right? So it, it kind of strikes me that the whole kind of concerted cultivation um, is is a lot more involvement by parents. And, uh, you know, I don't wanna say helicopter parenting, but someone else got, kind of mentioned that term, right? So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, is that what it is? And, you know, did you find that there was more resilience when um, sort of using, as you, as you turned to the natural growth um, way of doing things? Yes, I think there is more resilience in working class and poor families. The kids figure it out themselves. They know how to do it. They have a set of skills. And also their parents, uh, for better or worse, when they're 18, they figure that they're grown. So even when sometimes when the kids wanted to drop out of high school and the mothers were just vehemently against it, right. they just figured they couldn't stop it because the kids were grown. And so there's a more of a prolonged dependence by the middle-class parents where they give over key decisions to their parents. And sometimes they resent it, yeah. but uh, like I've been in a cab and uh you know, somebody and their kid were in New York and the kid's calling from Los Angeles and wants to get across town and is calling their mom or dad to help them figure out how do you right. get somewhere. So yeah. you see just tremendous dependence on parents applying to college, applying to GRE, uh, applying to law school, where their parents are just doing a lot for the kids. And there's some, I think, some pretty good evidence from social psychologists that that can sometimes increase kids' depression and anxiety and that, in fact, letting kids fail, which is hard to do, um, in fact, is a very important life experience for young children to learn how to be resilient and learn how to adapt. To, life is harsh. And a lot of middle-class parents would say, she can do anything she wants. She could, but that's not true. Kids can't do anything they want. 
you often get rejected. You often don't get in. You often don't get the promotion you want. Yeah. And so sometimes there's a way in which the middle-class families are not being realistic with kids when they uh, imply that they can do anything they want in life. Right, right. So, you know, in your, in your I think it was your YouTube video where you said, you know, you went back and, uh, you know, after you studied some of these kind of characteristics of these families, you went back to see, you know, what had actually happened and how they actually evolved. Can you talk a little bit about what you found? I did. Uh, Ten years after when the youth were 19 or 20, I went back and, uh, you know, at some level I had the kids I had started with. I followed up the 12 in particular I'd followed most intensively. Yeah. And if I was just going to study a longitudinal study, I might have had a different sample. But more or less the die was cast in crucial ways when they were in fourth grade um, in terms of their schooling and their occupational opportunities. Now, the, the one thing that really changed the most was the impact of um, race on daily life, which we know from other studies. So when the kids were 10, you know, they lived in racially segregated neighborhoods. The fathers, fathers and mothers complained about discrimination at work. There were some worries in public space where, say, Black men would be seen as dangerous. You know, men made equivalent of $150,000 and were lawyers or judges, but they would be seen as dangerous. So it's not that race didn't matter in daily life. It did. But what I was looking at, kids' organized activities, if how parents talk to kids and intervention, uh, there was a great deal of similarity between the middle-class white children and middle-class African-American children. There was a huge difference between the middle-class African-American children and the working-class and poor African-American children. But when they were 20, I would say, as a lot of other research showed, the middle-class uh, Black children, were, especially the boys, you know, were subject to being followed around in stores and racial insults on the street, particularly in different ways. And really the only people who escaped that was sort of the white working class kids often reported harassment and difficulty with the police, as did the working class, obviously, working class black children and working class uh, black poor children. But it was really the white middle class kids who escaped it. And uh, so white working class people also complained about harassment of the police, but it was bitter, more bitter and more pointed by the black middle class. And so one kid went to the equivalent of Columbia and he was being, had very high SAT scores and went on to be a doctor. And he was being followed around in stores by people. So there was a way in which that grew as they grew as well. Right, but when you say follow around in stores by people, is this kind of just, um, just bullying? Is that kind of what you mean? No, I mean, like if he goes to, uh, little grocery store boutique yeah. and he's in the corner somebody would come over next to him and quote unquote put something away just to keep their eyes on him they thought he might be shoplifting oh interesting okay very interesting so you know you made a statement saying that by the time that um grade four hit the die was cast in terms of what their careers may uh, may be or what their life's going to be can you sort of like go a bit deeper into that in terms of what you meant by that and sort of right. you know, what are those trajectories? I mean, to be sure there is upward mobility in America. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a private university similar to Stanford or Yale. It's in the Ivy League. And the University of Pennsylvania has a program where if you make, your family makes under 66,000 a year and you're admitted to Penn, they will pay, we have a no loan, loan policy and they will pay the entire tuition and living expenses. Right. Um, so there are people who are upwardly mobile in America, but 
upper mobility is rare and only about 4% kids who start off poor end up rich. And so uh, by which we mean start off in the bottom quintile and end up in the top quintile of income. Yeah. So, um, you know, their parents wanted the kids to succeed, but their schooling often wasn't going that well by fourth grade. Some of the kids were a grade or two grades behind. Uh, they were hoping for, you know, to be a musician or a rock star or a ballerina they had lot, or a dancer. They had lots of dreams, the right. kids. And the parents had dreams for them, but not all those dreams came true, obviously. And um, so already when they were 18, 19, looked like college wasn't going to happen. Their careers weren't going to happen in the way they had hoped. And more or less, past behavior was a best predictor of future behavior. Interesting. So you found this for sort of the working class and the poor. Right. And also for the middle class, the parents were intervening in schooling when they were 10 and they were intervening in schooling when they were 18 and when they were 22. I mean, the parents were calling up coaches and calling up the AP people and saying, look at AP English and AP maths are scheduled at the same time. You got to work this out. My kid needs to take both of them. So the right. parents were intervening in high school and, and often these were hidden from view. The kids themselves didn't see it. All the advantages they had been given, they thought, well, they had worked hard, they'd study hard, which they had. And right. they thought that it was really a matter of their effort. So the advantages they had of their social class position were largely hidden to both the parents and to the children. Right, so that what, I, what I think I'm hearing is that um, what you found is, is this concerted cultivation um, with the middle class where parents actually were involved with their kids, they sort of removed obstacles or guided the kids into just better opportunities. And that turned out to be much more advantageous um, than, you know, I guess the natural growth approach for working class and the poor. Yeah, but also the kids went to different schools. They went to different public high schools and the public high schools had important resources. Like in the middle-class high school, they had a whole semester preparing for the SAT. And the working-class high school, the kids the high school they attended didn't have that. They had um, more funding, they had less teacher turnover. The curriculum was more advanced and more rigorous. So the kids went to different schools and the schools had an independent role as well. So there were multiple factors were coming together. It wasn't one factor. At one yeah, point. very interesting. So really what you're saying is, I mean, um, you know, based on kind of social class that dictated where they live and where they go to school and depending upon that environment, you know, they were either um, exposed to opportunities or not. That's right. I'm working on a book on refugees right now with a, yeah. my co-author Blair Sackett. And we are following refugees who we followed, she followed for five years from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And they came to the US, almost all had very difficult, traumatic stories with war and fleeing. And then they were in refugee camps a long time. But when they came, they really were eager to be upwardly mobile. And they were not afraid of hard work, these refugee families, like they often work 60 hours a week. But there were many problems. First, the work, their jobs were low wage work. So yeah. they couldn't really, uh, like at $725 an hour, it's hard to buy a house, no matter how much you, how hard you work. Yeah. <clears throat> and the schools were different. 
And one family in particular started in a school that was a very, considered one of the best schools in the state. And then they ended up moving to another community where there were more jobs and the wage, the housing wasn't expensive. And that was considered to be one of the worst schools in the state. And the programs made a huge difference in how much the kids learned English and learned math and learned algebra. They didn't have tutors and the kids were making pretty good headway in the first school, but that more or less stopped at the second school. And now it looks like they may go, go graduate from college, but high school, high school, but they're not going to college, these, these refugee kids. Hmm. So that would have been their father's dream for them. Yeah, that's quite interesting. So when you talk, I mean, obviously we talk, we're talking about class quite a bit. Um, how does race play into this? I know you touched on that a little bit, but if we just take sort of the working class, um, you know, African-American versus white families versus immigrants, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, we've got a lot of Asian um, immigrants yeah. also, whether they're Indian yeah. or Chinese and, you know, uh, my parents were immigrants also. Yeah. Any kind of, you know, differences or, or how did race really play into how lives turned out? Race is a very important feature in American society. There's incredibly good research that shows in almost every aspect of American life, there is a racial disadvantage, which appears to be heavily linked to discrimination. So for example, little kids in an emergency room, they did a study of over a million kids in emergency rooms. They made sure that they had the same diagnosis, which was an appendectomy. They were the same age and they checked if they had insurance or not. And little black kids got less medication than little white kids, especially the strong medication. Uh, We know in sentencing patterns that sometimes judges give people a break, but they're much more likely to give that to white uh, defendants, not black defendants. Hiring, you send people, you dress people up in very similar outfits, send them to the same jobs within 24 hours apart, and whites are more likely to get a call back than black. Now, most people don't get a call back. But if they do get a call back, there's an advantage to race. So there's no doubt that race is an important aspect of American society. Um, And people live in neighborhoods that are racially segregated. Homes in black neighborhoods rise in value more slowly than homes in white neighborhoods, which means that black families accumulate less wealth in their home. And the home is the biggest, excuse me, is the biggest form of wealth for most Americans. And so there's a significant difference in assets of say in the Bay Area, which has expensive housing, if you live in a predominantly black neighborhood compared to predominantly white neighborhood, the difference in the home can be like $900,000 for the same home. That means when you die and your parents, if you have three kids, each kid's going to inherit 300,000 less. So there's a tangible way in which racial inequality in housing and in other things makes an important difference in kids' life chances. Um, And I was looking particularly at kids' organized activities, their um, language use, if they answered questions with questions or gave directives, and their intervention in institutions. Those three areas. I mean, there's been some new research coming out that says that Black middle-class moms think about their racial composition when they choose organized activities. Like they, they can say, well, if they have a church group, which is where there's a lot of other Black kids, they can let go of swimming where there may not be that many black kids. So right. they kind of try to balance it out. But a lot of people, there aren't that many swimming and karate. It's kind of like one choice for you. If you go by the age group, by yeah. distance, you're not on the road all the time, there will often, there are almost no choices. So even though people are worried about it, they have, they choose what they can. And there's no doubt 
that black middle-class kids have organized activities just like white middle-class kids. Um, I mean, clearly black parents want their kids to have a positive racial identity. They're worried about the police. They're worried about discrimination. Right. Um, and I did a paper with uh, colleagues about choosing homes and black middle-class parents desperately want their kids to go to high achieving schools, which have a robust racial diversity. And those schools generally do, simply do not exist right now in American cities. So if, if you go to the top performance level and test scores, all of those schools are only 5% African-American. So parents have to make compromises. Right. And um, they have different ways they make compromises. But um, I would say black parents are often very anxious about sending their kids to school because they're worried about their kids not being seen for their tremendous potential, but being seen, being treated in an uneven way. And there's a lot of anxiety about that on the part of their African-American parents. Yeah, so there's just, there's just a lot more kind of um, stress around that that they have to think about. Exactly, and you know, what do we know about kids? Kids are like sponges. Kids pick up the vibe from their parents. Yep. Yep. So probably little kids are picking this up from their parents as well. So Annette, you found out, um, you know, lots of interesting things um, and you, you noticed how lives had kind of changed um, based on sort of a 10 year history. What kind of, um, you know, do you have some advice for parents um, and, you know, what can they be doing differently to sort of change the course of their lives or their kids' lives? Well, I think for the working class kids and the, uh, the parents in working class and poor families, reading to kids is extremely helpful when kids are little. And okay. um, all the research suggests that. Just And if parents often don't have great literacy skills, they could get a cousin or a brother or a sister or a neighbor to read to kids. But there's something special, not, not watching a video, but reading to kids a book going using and libraries are usually free. I mean, often sometimes if somebody loses a book, there's a fine, but that's hopefully rare. But getting kids, I mean, from kids, the time kids are two to five, that's an excellent time to be reading to children. Um, turning off the TV, turning off the videos and just reading, you know, 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day. It builds vocabulary and um, it builds what they call language comprehension, comprehending language. Yeah. And it's extremely valuable over the long term. And also answering questions with questions, talking to kids, letting kids answer, listening to, you know, sometimes kids go on and on about little things that are important to them. Talking to kids is also very helpful for little kids and that can improve their performance in school in a key way. Um, I've interviewed a fair number of upwardly mobile people and almost all of them like to read. Reading is a huge benefit in school. And if right. kids like to read, they're just often, it's, school is easier for them. Right. So, you know, you mentioned the questions with questions a few times. Um, can you tell me, yeah. sort of, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, yeah. what's the advantage of that? So uh, let's say I have a grand, I have grand, we have, we have four grandchildren and who are all under eight. And um, so if one of them calls me Nana, and they say, um, they say, Nana, why is this, why is this orange so big? And 
rather than just sort of dismiss being busy and dismissing it. I mean, I'm busy. Do I have time to talk about this? Yeah. But say, well, let's think about that a little bit. Uh, where do where do the how do oranges grow? Where do you think they grow? Uh, do you think they grow in a bush or in a tree? And and why would some get bigger than others? What well, what do you think might make a difference? Oh, you think rain might make a difference? Oh, yeah, I guess we could water them too. So just kind of like stopping and going through it step by step, asking the kid to sort of do some thinking. Yep. And that that the kid learning how to articulate words and say words, learning new words. Yeah. Um, maybe you could say irrigation. Irrigation is when we bring water to plants. And yep. in California and Florida, we need a lot of irrigation because it doesn't rain much there. Did you know it rains different? You know, anyway, in other words, kind of going back and forth with them a little bit about uh, what the question was and make helping them be curious about the world and helping them um, think about language as something to be enjoyed and something, uh, you know, little jokes or wordplay, et cetera. Yeah. Make it fun. That's great. It pretty much sounds like, you know, you're igniting or unlocking sort of the door to a whole wealth of knowledge that can be, uh, that can be transferred to this, uh, to this young person versus just answering the question. Yes, exactly. Right. Amazing. Um, so you talked about, uh, you know, some of the things around poor and working class. What about middle class families, um, you know, and the whole concerted cultivation? And you gave this example about kids fighting in the back and, and you know, the middle class parents basically saying, um, you know, I should have separated them. I mean, what are some of the things that middle class families should be doing over there? Or I guess really, I mean, any kind of family when they have situations like that. I think, I mean, taking care of kids can be kind of tedious for parents and parents are working many hours. We know the number of hours people are working often, both parents work outside the home and, you know, parents are rushed. They're busy, they're working hard, they're tired. And I think it's very hard for them to put down their phones and pay attention to kids, but turning off the phones for, let's say, an hour a day, you know, I mean, if kids are hungry, they're more likely to throw a tantrum and be a twit. And kids are often little twits. You know, sometimes this is like, welcome, take a bite of the reality sandwich, you know. Yeah. And so we have an overly romantic view of family life. Um, but even with that, I think staying in the moment, uh, trying to take, turn off the email and turn off the phones, turn off the TV, and just kind of be with kids in the moment. Kids don't have a good sense of time. And, you know, before they're 12, 12, kids really like to be with their parents a lot. They, it makes them feel special. Uh, having, if we have multiple kids, taking a kid out for an ice cream is something the kid is like thrilled to pieces to do. That's right. And so on the other hand, I think kid, parents also, there are benefits to letting kids play by themselves. And if the kid is playing by, playing by themselves on the floor, just let that go. You know, you could read a book. You can role model reading a book. If you role model reading, then that's going to help kids read. Right. So if moms like to read novels, even though you're super busy and even though the laundry is piled up, sitting down and reading is you're going to help demonstrate to kids the value of reading and the pleasures of reading in daily life. Right. And also not trying to be a super mom or super dad. You know, are you sleep deprived? Yes. But do they really need... You know, I've, I remember I wrote a column that was in the New York Times about kids' summer. 
I got this letter from this mom who was very distressed. And she felt like she took her kids every summer to a house in the country with their cousins. They were gone a full month. Because that, the kids couldn't participate in the summer activities. And she, she literally was worried that she was ruining their chances for college. And I'm like, you know, they're gonna be fine. And spending time with their cousins that you enjoy and being together can be really special. So I wouldn't worry about it. But there's a lot of like, will he get into he will they get into college? Will they kind of and the reality that is one of the best predictors of that is parents' own background. If you went to college, your kids are likely to go to college. Not all. Sometimes kids have hiccups. Right. But you shouldn't worry about leaving for a month in the summer if you want to go to a family lake house and and pull kids out of organized activities, you know, I think they'll, they'll, they'll work it out. They'll figure um, it out. They'll figure it out. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, you've mentioned the term um, upward mobility a few times. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, could you just talk about that a little bit? Like, does this just happen? Um, is it kind of an automatic thing? Um, or is it really work to go in that direction? Yeah, it's work. I mean, you, almost every person say who's the first person in their family to go to college. That means they're they're upwardly mobile. They're going on a climbing a ladder and they're ending up in a position different than their parents. Um, often a teacher helps them or a counselor or a Girl Scout leader or somebody helps them do this. Right. And helps them find out about college, apply to college. And there, there are now college programs that will pay you know, tuition and help you. Also, there's some great institutions that do this, including the City University of New York, right. um, the University of California state system. Right. So going to college and getting a job after college often can be extremely consequential in changing your life trajectory. Um, but it is hard because it is different then and their, li their lives are different. And so if you're a I mean, I've interviewed somebody who was a doctor and his dad was a factory worker. His mom was the lunch lady at the cafeteria. And he did get a law, a medical degree, but it was just hard. He said going home was like work for him because you know everybody had a health problem and they were, they were a big meat eating family and everyone would have like four or five pounds of meat. There'd be no vegetables. A lot of people smoked. And it just was sort of, he was now, he adopted some different cultural tastes. He liked craft beer and inexpensive right. wine. And they said, oh, like you're being a snob. And it's just, there was more distance now between him and his family. And he loved his family and he stayed connection yeah. with them. But it was a little bit harder because his life was different now in key ways. And you see that when the interviews were people who have gotten a college degree and been the first person in their family to become a professional, their lives are different. Right. I mean, when I asked that question, I was really around sort of the, you know, thinking about the goal, everybody's goal is to be upward mobile. And I think what you've just sort of hit on is probably um, some of these sort of side effects um, of that um, when you do sort of um, end up being one of the first in your family to, to maybe make it or, um, you know, have, have sort of a better place in society. Um, so that's really interesting. And I'm sure, you know, a, a whole new topic in, in itself uh, to kind of talk about. Um, Annette, uh, you know, we're probably going to run on time over here, but uh, can you talk to us just a little bit about, you've written, a, you've written another book called Home Advantage. 
Um, we won't have time to kind of dig into that, but just give us kind of a really um, surface level view of like what that book's about. That was my first book and that was about uh, social class differences and family school relationships. And so kids want to be helpful, but some of the blue collar parents thought the way they're most helpful is just to turn over responsibility to teachers, figure education happens at school. Right. Well, the middle-class parents saw it as more of a division of labor where they did one part and the school did one part. So teachers, unfortunately, misunderstand this. So when parents don't come for him in for parent-teacher conferences, since actually it doesn't really matter since education is in the hands of the teachers, not the parents, right. um, teachers denigrate those parents and think that they don't value education. So teachers have a hard time seeing how that, yeah, in fact, blue-collar parents respect teachers more than often middle-class parents do because middle-class parents can be very critical of teachers. They're not teachers, but they could have become a teacher yeah. by definition. And so often middle-class moms can be quite critical of teachers. And uh, though how they criticize them is often they don't come in guns a blazing, but they'll come in and say, oh, we're so excited to have you. And at the very end, they'll say, do you think Tommy's being challenged? You know, so they kind of like weave it in in this way to sort of right. artfully place a request that's in a very subtle way. Okay. So, um, so, but misunderstood people need to, you know, I haven't had brain surgery and God forbid, but if I did, I would surely turn over responsibility to the neurologist. I wouldn't come in saying, you know, I think you ought to do it this way. Right. And, and so really a lot of working class people have a lot of a notion of professional expertise that teachers are educated. And so they don't really see themselves as being involved in education. It's really something that happens at school and teachers have a hard time understanding that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. it looks like it, there's, there's two sides to the coin on that one. Uh, on, on one side, it's, uh, you know, two hands off on the other side, uh, you're actually maybe interfering. That's right. <laughs> in That's some right. ways, so uh, very interesting. Um, so Annette, um, what kind of challenges did you face when you were actually writing the Unequal Childhoods book? Well, um, you know, all, all families have their own way about it. And there are strengths and weaknesses to each family. And so I think it's important that we honor and respect each family um, as having, as really wanting the best for their kids. And so um, I was trying to write a book that helped us show the drawbacks to all methods of childbearing. And, you know, and so for example, corporal punishment is something that was extremely common in the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And even highly educated parents would um, use corporal punishment. Spanking your kids. Spanking your kids, yeah. Right. Or hitting your heads with a belt. Yeah, yeah. And certainly in colonial America, people saw their little kids as being evil and had needing to have a devil beat out of them. And so we have several hundred years of parents hitting kids. So people have very strong views about this right now. But just because people have strong views don't, doesn't mean that they're necessarily, that's the only way to see it. Right. And so, you know, sometimes middle-class parents see really mean things to kids. Like, I don't wanna be your mother anymore. But if they do that and the kid tells the teacher, nothing's going to happen. But usually, but if the kid is beaten with a belt and has some red marks on the arm and the 
school finds out that parents are at risk for having kids taken away and the parents aren't wrong about that. They are, they are at risk. So we, schools unequally validate different strategies of child rearing. And I think we need to understand that these are historically specific and for better or worse, nobody knows the right way to raise kids. They all have strengths and weaknesses, but some are given more um, power or more uh, legitimacy than others. Yeah, and somehow sort of, I guess, I don't know, if there's a word for societal latitude somehow. That's right, that's right, latitude, yeah. exactly. So, um, Annette, these experiences that you've actually had studying family life, um, unequal childhoods, home advantage, how have they kind of changed you? Well, um, when I, um, I, I didn't get married till I was relatively late in life, I was, uh, 40 in my early 40s when I got married and uh, I married uh, my husband who's a fantastic person we've been married 25 years and um, he brought two children to our marriage and um, one was 12 and one was 16 and the 12 year old is severely autistic and he um, he's kind of like a three-year-old you know and um, and so he says things that everybody thinks but nobody else says yeah. And so um, I do, I, I got asked that question a lot, like, how can you write a book about kids if you don't have kids? But in fact, it was a good thing because people have very strong views about how to raise kids. And I think if I'd had uh, my own kids at that time, then I would have really been certain that I should legitimate the way I was doing it as correct. And trying to say, may a thousand flowers bloom and let's look at a variety of methods and then see the different payoffs for kids, I think uh, was actually helpful. Um, right. um, but I think also there's, you know, it's one of Grace life. I mean, like you interview people, you see studies of people who are in the Super Bowl or people who have extraordinary life experiences and almost all say that one of the most powerful life experiences was the birth of the first child, which is a very common life event. Yeah. So children bring uh, many wonderful gifts to us and they're not without challenges, but there's just tremendous joy in family life, seeing little kids and seeing them grow up. And um, it's like when they say the days, the days are long, but the years fly by. Yeah. And being a parent is a very rewarding life experience. And, um, and I, you know, I, I've had that. And now I, I think I, anyway, I think both the study and my own life have reinforced that for me. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, as a parent, is there a feeling that you have that you would rather not feel? Well, if you have a child who's severely disabled and thus not able to take care of himself because he doesn't understand time or money in this instance, like he, um, yeah. I mean, he'll say granny's late going to heaven. And he'll tell Granny that Granny, you're late going to heaven. <laughs> and and Granny died when she was 104. She was he wasn't wrong about that. Right. Um, uh, but I would say that parents who have a kid who's disabled have do have despair because they worry about what's going to happen after they die, and they won't be there to protect the child. And there there are lots of we we need government to help us and we do have government to help it. We need more help for more people whose kids are disabled because it's a, you know it's hard for them. 
Um, but you uh, pray that everything will be okay after you die. And, you know, hopefully it will, but you won't be there to see it. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Annette. Um, is there a place um, that you'd like to point our audience to, um, to get your books um, or anything else? Uh, Unequal Childhoods is uh, widely available. Uh, Annette LaRoe, L-A-R-E-A-U. And then um, I hope to write a book one day about um, what I hope to call normal families. And I'm interested in how almost every family I know about something terrible has happened. And children often are harmed as they grow up. And somebody, a parent died early, a sibling is disabled, somebody's mentally ill, there's an addiction issue, they're poor. Yep. And so I think sometimes we have an overly romantic view of family life. And I hope to write a book one day that helps people understand how common it is that families have major life challenges, not little challenges, but major life challenges. And they can come through and have a family and the children are going to be okay. They'll be, they'll be shaped by it, yep. but still it's going to be, it will still be okay. And I'd like to write a book about that one day. Okay, great. Well, I'm sure the audience will be looking forward to something like that. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Annette. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. We would really appreciate if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us any feedback to reachingroots at wishslate.com. Also, download the Wishslate app to help organize wish lists for your family and change the way you gift. You can download this from www.wishslate.com slash download.